If you've been a Christian for some time, you're probably familiar with the name Martin Luther. Luther, a man used greatly by God during the 16th century Reformation, is well known for his courageous defense of the gospel against the corruption of the church in Rome. He is also known for a hymn that he wrote during that time. That hymn is entitled, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. A hymn that the church has cherished and sung for centuries. And it was in the midst of a very difficult season in Luther's life that he wrote that hymn. On April 22nd, 1527, about ten years into the Reformation, Luther was forced to stop preaching in the middle of a sermon because of a severe dizziness that overcame him. This was a very troubling incident for Luther, and it was serious enough that it caused him to fear for his life. Later that year, on July 6th, just a few months later, while enjoying a meal with some friends, he experienced an intense ringing in his ear, which eventually led to sickness and collapse. From that day on, Luther continued to experience this this ringing in his ear, causing him to be extremely distressed and discouraged. He also experienced heart problems and intestinal complications, which only added to his trials. Things got worse when the Black Plague swept across Germany and made its way to the town where Luther and his family lived, and convinced that it was their duty to care for the sick, They stayed and welcomed many into their home to care for them. And it was at this time that their one-year-old son became very ill and nearly died. So this was certainly a most troubling time in Luther's life, and all of that just added to the pressures of, of fighting the corruption of the church in Rome. And it was out of these significant trials that Luther wrote the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And as we would expect from Luther, this hymn is drawn directly from the pages of Scripture. And specifically, this this hymn is drawn from the psalm that we will consider this morning, Psalm 46. In some of the most troubling times when discouraged, Luther would turn to his friend and partner, Philip Melanchthon, and he would say, Come, Philip, let us sing the 46th psalm. What did Luther find in this psalm? that gave him such confidence in the midst of such troubling circumstances? How did Psalm 46 help Luther endure the extreme distress and the debilitating discouragements of his trials? This morning, Psalm 46 is just important for us as it was for Luther centuries ago. Some of you may be in the midst of a a very troubling time in life. I trust that you will be strengthened and encouraged by this psalm. Some of you may be anxious as you ponder the the uncertainties of the future and a new year full of unknowns. I trust that this psalm will deepen your confidence in God, knowing that he is always with us to protect and to sustain us. We're not all enduring a difficult season right now, But one thing is true of every single one of us in this room, that sooner or later we will all endure some kind of suffering and trial. One author in his book on suffering made this simple and profound statement that has stuck with me. He said, all we have to do 
is live long enough and we will suffer. So let's begin this morning by reading the 46th Psalm. Psalm 46. To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to the Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. In this psalm, we learn this simple truth. Because God is with us to protect and sustain us, we can confidently face whatever troubles confront us in this life. Because God is with us to protect and sustain us, we can confidently face whatever troubles confront us in this life. The reality is that we're not inclined to be confident when trouble strikes. We're, we're inclined to fear. We're inclined to be anxious and to worry. And too often, in an effort to escape our circumstances, we seek refuge in something other than God. But when we seek refuge in God, fearlessness and confidence can be found, even in the most difficult situations. Now let's take a closer look at this psalm. We'll study this psalm under three main headings, divided for us by the word selah, which as best we know, uh, is simply a notation used to call for a pause in the musing the music, and the singing. So under these three headings, the psalm speaks of God as, first of all, in verses 1 through 3, God as our strong shelter. And in this stanza, we learn that God is present with us to protect us from the most threatening circumstances of nature. And because this is true, God's people can resolve to never fear. Then in the second stanza, verses 4 through 7, the psalmist speaks of God as our present provider. Here we see God in the midst of a city, supplying all that is needed to sustain the people. This stanza presents God as a defender of his city against the raging enemy nations outside the walls. Then the third stanza, verses 8 through 11 In this final stanza, we encounter a God who brings wars to an end by triumphing over the enemy. In the end, this God will be exalted in the earth. 
And so that third stanza, we see God as our reigning ruler. So let's consider in greater detail, first of all, our strong shelter in verses 1 through 3. The psalmist begins in verse 1 by stating the theme uh, for the entire psalm here in verse 1. It says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. We'll see this theme restated in similar words in verses 7 and 11, where it says that the Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress. Here in verse 1, the psalmist praises God for three things. But before we look at those three things, notice the very first word of this psalm. The very first word is God. This is a psalm about God. This piece was surely written to encourage and to strengthen the people of God. But in doing this, the writer doesn't choose to focus his attention on man. The writer doesn't choose to contemplate the resourcefulness of man. This is not a psalm on on how man can access his own inner strength. This is a psalm about who God is primarily and how his people can be confident in him. And in particular, verse 1 praises God for three things. First, God is our refuge. And a refuge is a place that one goes to find shelter and protection from danger. It's a place where one runs for security in time of trouble. It's a place of defense against opposing forces. This theme of God as a refuge, it's found throughout the Psalms. In, in Psalm 2, verse 12, it says that those who take refuge in God are called blessed. In Psalm 5, 11, it says, Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. In Psalm 62, 7, the psalmist proclaims, On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. In Psalm 91, 4, the psalmist declares of God, He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. Notice that in all of these verses, God himself is our shelter. It's not that he provides a shelter for us. He himself is our shelter. He is the one to whom we can run to find protection in times of trouble. The psalmist here in in 46.1 declares that God is the one who ultimately covers us with protection and provides a safe place where we can find shelter, a place to which we can run when troubles threaten us. So first, we see that God is our refuge, and then second, the psalmist praises God because God is our strength. He's not only our protection, but also our power, our strength when we are weak. He is a mighty force who upholds his people with his power. I love the way that Paul encourages the Ephesian believers in Ephesians Chapter 6, verse 10, as he's bringing his letter to them to a close, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. It's not so much that God provides us with our own inner strength, but that he himself is our strength. When it seems that everything is against us, 
we can have confidence knowing that the strength of God himself is for us. When it seems that circumstances are too difficult for you, you're probably right. But when we are weak, he is strong. Let's abandon our tendency to look within for the strength that we need. The psalmist praises God because he is our strength. Let us go to him to find the strength that we need in times of weariness. And now third, in this first verse, God is praised because God is our help. God is our help. In distress and adversity, God is a very present help. This phrase, a very present help, it suggests that God is easily found when you need him. He is a strong shelter, always present to help his people. It was sometime last year on a, a Sunday morning at Grace Community. I was walking through the halls between services when a young boy emerged out of the bustling crowd, tears streaming down his face, looking every which way for someone. And I knew immediately what the situation was. This boy had lost his parents. I went to him and put my arm around him and began looking for his parents with him. And it wasn't long before one of the children's ministry workers came and helped the boy and probably found his parents soon afterwards. But as I think back to that incident now, I realize that too often we respond to trials just like that, that boy responded when he realized that he had lost his parents. In that moment, that kid thought that maybe he had been forgotten or that he had been abandoned. When we see that kid in the halls at church or, what, or we see him in the aisle at the grocery store, as adults, we just want to tell the kid, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I can assure you that your parents have not left. I know it doesn't feel like it to that young kid. It doesn't feel like the parents are nearby. But I just want to tell that kid, I'm sure that your parents are not far. When faced with troubles, when tempted to believe that we are all alone, we must remember that God is a very present help. He is not far from us. He is easily found when we need him. There are no situations, there are no places where we can possibly find ourselves separated from the very presence of God. When we believe that these things are true of God, that he is our refuge and our strength, and that he is a very present help in time of trouble, we can agree with the conclusion that the psalmist reaches in verse 2. The psalmist says, therefore, we will not fear. You will never find yourself in a situation in which God Almighty is absent or, or incapable of helping you. There are no situations too difficult, too dangerous, or too messy for God. God can be trusted in the most troubling times, and therefore, we resolve that we will never fear let that be our resolve this morning. To drive this point home in verses 2 and 3, the psalmist paints a picture of the unsettling events of a cataclysmic earthquake. He says, Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, 
Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Probably the two things that we think of as most immovable and unchangeable are the earth and the mountains. And in these, these two images are what the writer uses and says, even if the earth should give way and even if the mountains should slide into the sea, we will not fear. That must be our resolve as well. Even if the things in life that we regard as most stable and secure were suddenly to be lost or destroyed, we can say with the psalmist, we will not fear. And the only reason that we can say this is because God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Job is such a helpful example to us in this. Job was a man who had a a vibrant family with ten faithful children. He had wealth which made him the greatest of all the people of the East. Then in a single day, Job lost all of it. His children dead, his wealth gone. Those things that we regard as the most foundational to our lives They were suddenly lost to Job. The earth gave way in Job's life, so to speak, and the mountains moved into the sea. Job 1.22 says, in the simplest terms, one of the most astonishing statements in the Bible. It says, in all this, Job did not sin. Did Job experience pain beyond description? Absolutely. But in all this, Job did not sin, which means that Job did not fear. Instead, verse 20 records that Job fell on the ground and worshipped God. Though the things that we consider most immovable and unchangeable, the things most foundational, the things that we build our lives on, Though they be lost, we need not fear, because God is with us as a strong shelter. The chaotic scene continues in verse 3. As a result of the mountains being moved into the heart of the sea, its waters roar and foam. This is the description of a restless and chaotic sea, tumultuous tidal waves crashing loudly against each other. It's a surge so powerful that the mountains tremble, at its swelling. How is it possible that in such chaos and clamor, in such earth-shattering circumstances, man can say, we will not fear? It's not based on man's own strength that he can have this kind of confidence. The strength of man could never withstand the forces that are described in these verses. Listen to what Luther says in his hymn. He says, did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing. It's only possible to to overcome such fear when your refuge and your strength and your help come from someone who is bigger and stronger than all of it. Even when faced with the most trying and troubling circumstances, God's people can look to him, to him who is greater than it all, and find refuge, strength, and help because God is our strong shelter. 
And now in verses 4 through 7, in the second stanza, the psalmist speaks of God as our present provider. Our present provider. In contrast to the roaring seas and the chaos of verse 3, the psalmist begins the second stanza by taking us to the city of God, where the presence and the provision of God are found. In verses 4 through 6, we learn three things about God. First, God provides for his city. God provides for his city. Look at verse 4. It says, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. The city of God refers to the place where God's chosen, it was God's chosen earthly residence and most likely understood to be Jerusalem at the time that this psalm was written. And in this city where God dwells, there is a river, the psalmist says, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Throughout Scripture, the river is a metaphor of blessing and provision. If we look at the beginning in Genesis 2.10, it says that a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And then if we look at the end in Revelation 22, verses 1 through 2, John says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. So this river that we see in Psalm 46 is a river of blessing and provision. And therefore, its streams make glad the city of God. Living here in the Central Valley, right next to the the King's River, we understand this metaphor well. We experience firsthand how a river can be a source of blessing and provision to make a people glad. In addition to providing water for homes and businesses, it's estimated that the King's River services about 15,000 farms. A University of California study in 1992 concluded that agriculture generates 29% of all Central Valley jobs and about one of every $3 of Central Valley personal income. So all this is dependent on a river. And when you stop and think about it, you realize just how vital a river is uh, to, to sustain a people. So we understand this idea of a river being a source of blessing and provision for a people. The psalmist says that in the city of God, there is a river. And this river is God's means of providing for and sustaining his people. Notice in in the midst of all the calamity described in this psalm, we saw the calamity in the first stanza, and we'll return to more calamity in the verses to come. In the midst of all of this, there is still gladness for God's people. The city of God, though, though threatened by enemies and opposing forces, is populated with joyful citizens because God is sustaining and providing for her needs. And this is also a city full of gladness and blessing, Because it is, as verse 4 says, the holy habitation of the Most High. God blesses and provides for his city, the city in which he dwells. We ought to be encouraged this morning as believers by the fact that just as God dwelt in earthly Jerusalem at the time of this psalm, he dwells in each and every believer through his Holy Spirit. The same God 
who dwelt with his people in Jerusalem, now dwells with each one of us through his spirit to sustain us and to provide for us and to bless us. So God provides for his city. And now, second, we learn that God secures his city. Look at verse 5. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. Because God is in the midst of this city, the psalmist says, she shall not be moved. And this is in contrast to the dramatic movement that took place in the first stanza. In verses 1 to 3, it was nature, nature that was threatening the people of God. And now in verses 4 through 7, it is nations threatening the people of God. Look at verse 6. It says, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. But because God is present, neither the, the forces of nature nor the forces of nations pose any threat to God's people. The psalmist says that God will help her. That's the city. God will help her when morning dawns. When morning dawns, this refers to the time of day when a city is most vulnerable to attack. Even at the most vulnerable time, God is present to defend and to secure his city. So God provides for his city. He secures his city. And now third, God empowers his city. Verse 6. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. Even the collective forces of nations and kingdoms raging against God's city are as nothing compared to God. The rage and the clamor of kingdoms and nations are silenced at the mere uttering of God's powerful voice. The same voice that spoke the world into existence is the voice that speaks for the city against her enemies. With his word, God empowers his city by defeating the surrounding enemies. Now there's an interesting connection that I'd like you to see between verses six, verse 6 and verses 2 and 3 in the first stanza. The verbs used in verse 6 with the nations and kingdoms are the same Hebrew verbs used in verses 2 and 3 with the mountains and waters. So if you look at at verse 2, it says, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. That verb to be moved is the same verb translated totter in verse 6. The kingdoms totter. And in verse 3, the verb to roar is the same verb translated rage in verse 6. The nations rage. So, So why does the psalmist make this connection? I think, once again, the point that he's trying to make is that the same God who is sovereign over nature in the first stanza is sovereign over the nations. Just as God's people should not fear the earth-shattering events of nature described in the first stanza, they should not fear the power of nations surrounding the city of God. When we feel as though we're surrounded by opposition on every side, when every which way we turn in life is a new trial, we must remember that God gives us strength to withstand by the power of his very word. Luther captures this truth in his hymn when he writes, 
And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. We need not fear the enemy's rage, as Luther says. God's word carries with it the very power that spoke the world into existence. He utters his voice, the earth melts. This stanza concludes with a refrain which echoes the theme that was introduced in verse 1. Here in verse 7, the psalmist writes, The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The Lord of hosts, that's a title for God, which refers to him as a divine warrior. It could also be translated the Lord of armies. As God's people, we can confidently say, The Lord of hosts, the God of armies, is with us. And in that, we can find great confidence. The God of Jacob, another title for God, which highlights the protective character of God. Listen to Psalm 2010, which highlights this aspect of God's character. Psalm 2010 says, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. God is a divine warrior and the protector of his people. He provides for his city, he secures his city, and he empowers his city. God is a present provider for us. And now in the the final stanza, verses 8 through 11, we see that God is our reigning ruler. God is our reigning ruler. In this final stanza, the people of God are invited to consider the works of their reigning ruler. In verses 8 through 9, they're called to consider what God has done in the past to preserve and to protect his people. Then in verse 10, they're called to look forward to the final victory and future exaltation of God. To begin with, God's people are called to look back, to look back at God's past judgment. Verse 8 says, Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. The psalmist invites the reader to come, come and see the works that God has done in the history of salvation. And surely the psalmist intends for the people to remember events such as the great exodus from slavery in Egypt or the conquest of Canaan. In such events, the Lord brought desolations on the earth as he liberated his people and fulfilled his promises to them. Let me encourage you this morning to make it a habit to regularly consider what God has done for you in the past. As we ponder the uncertainties of the future and are tempted to fear, we can have confidence and we can have a hope that is grounded in what God has already accomplished for us in the past. As we remember the good things that God has done for us, we are reminded of his holy character as it has been displayed in our lives. Listen to Romans 15, verse 4. Paul says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, 
that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. In difficult situations, we would do well to behold the works of the Lord, both the works that are recorded for us in Scripture and those works that we have experienced firsthand in our very own lives. In remembering, we will receive encouragement and hope. Now back to Psalm 46. We continue in verse 9. The psalmist says, He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. This is a picture of God bringing wars to an end. And God ends wars not by negotiation, but by conquering his enemies and enforcing his peace upon them. Make no mistake, God makes wars cease, not by gentle persuasion, but by swift judgment. One commentator has said, although the outcome is peace, the process is judgment. And having conquered his enemies, verse 9 says that God enforces peace by destroying the weapons of war. Verse 9, he breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Now having looked, at, looked back at God's past judgment, the psalmist looks forward to God's future exaltation. For the first time in this psalm, we hear God speak. In verse 10, God says, Be still and know that I am God. These words from God are both a comfort for his people and a warning to his enemies. To God's people, these words remind us in times of trouble to be still and to know that God is God. There is great comfort in knowing that God is God, that he is in control, that nothing escapes him, and that he is with you to help you. Might it be that that we're most fearful in life when we are least aware of who God is? I have found that some of the most troubling times for my soul have been times when I was too busy to be still and to consider the great realities of who God is. Sometimes we just need to stop scurrying about. We need to turn off the TV. We need to put down the mobile device. We need to disconnect from the computer. We need to clear our busy schedule, and we need to get alone, and we need to be quiet, and we need to consider who God is is. And to his enemies, these same words are words of warning. He calls his enemies to cease striving, to be quiet, to be still. It's a call to know God personally before his judgment comes. God then follows this command to be still and to know that I am God with with affirmation that he will indeed conquer and be exalted in the end, as the reigning ruler. Verse 10 says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The peace and comfort offered in this psalm is grounded in the assurance that in the end, God will 
reign. He will be exalted, and his kingdom is forever. This is a promise that we as believers can stand on. In the end, God will reign. In the end, God will defeat all his enemies. In the end, God will be exalted. And if you are among his people, if you are in Christ, you will share in all of his victories. Surely there are some here this morning who are not presently in Christ, who are not counted among God's people. You are among those who surround the city walls, striving against God. This passage is a warning to you, a warning of your sure destruction unless you turn. The call to you this morning is to lay down your weapons of rebellion and to receive the gift of forgiveness that is found in Jesus Christ. You may not see yourself among the enemies of God. You'd probably rather consider yourself in a neutral position, not opposed to God, but not entirely committed to him either. Let me remind you that it was Jesus himself who said in Matthew twelve thirty, whoever is not with me is against me. And the Apostle Paul said in Romans fourteen twenty three, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. It means that whatever good thing you might do, if it's not done in reliance upon God and for his glory, then it is sin. If you turn from your rebellion and trust in the work of Christ on your behalf, you will be saved and you will be counted among God's people. Isaiah 55, 7 says, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. The destruction of the wicked is sure to come. God's word is calling you this morning, while there is still time, to repent. Will you turn from your rebellion and trust in Christ and in Christ alone for your salvation? Finally, the refrain from verse 7 is repeated here in verse 11. It says, The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The psalmist emphasizes once again that God is a divine warrior and the protector of his people. He is our place of safety and protection. He is our strong shelter. He is our fortress. Now let me conclude this morning by offering one point of application for us. And it is this. Identify and forsake false refuges in your life. Identify and forsake false refuges in your life. What is a false refuge? A false refuge is anything other than God to which you run to find relief, pleasure, safety, and comfort amid the troubles of life. A false refuge is anything other than God to which you run to find relief, pleasure, safety, and comfort amid the troubles of life. The desire to escape our troubles and, and to find refuge in something other than God is a very real temptation 
for all of us. Identify these false refuges and forsake them. Make God your only refuge in times of trouble. One of the last things that Jesus said as he hung on the cross was a direct quote taken from Psalm 31. In this psalm, David says in verses 4 through 5, You are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. Let us learn from our Savior, who in the midst of suffering greater than we will ever experience, cried out to God and found refuge in him. Martin Luther was able to endure such difficult trials in his life, not because he was strong in his own strength, but because he found refuge in a mighty fortress. Luther confidently faced the many challenges of his life because he believed that God was present to protect and to sustain him through the hardest times. I pray that the same is true for each one of us. Whether our trials are still yet future or whether whether they surround us at this very moment, God is a strong shelter, a present provider, and a reigning ruler in every trial and pain that life brings. Because God is with us to protect us and to sustain us, we can confidently face whatever troubles confront us in this life.